book filled with some of the most famous verses in, in all of scripture. Verses that have shaped many of our very experiences of the Christian life. Coming back to week one of this series, the highlight reel for those of you who weren't around. In the book of 2 Corinthians, you find verses like this. Chapter one, verse 20. We talked about this uh, in the recent rearview mirror of this series. For all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The very next verse, chapter four, verse seven, but we have this treasure, the gospel, the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show that this surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Chapter four, verses 17 and 18, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Chapter five, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Four verses later, chapter five, verse 21, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter eight, verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And lastly, chapter 12, verse nine, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Believe me when I say that the sequel is just as impressive as the original. We're, we're talking about a book that gives us a window not only into the Apostle Paul's heart, but his ability to apply the gospel in the moment. A little more free-flowing than some of Paul's letters, a little less systematic, a little less well-ordered than other books like Romans and Ephesians, and yet it speaks to so many things with respect to human experience speaks to our struggles with present uncertainty as Paul glories in God's trustworthiness and the certainty of our future. It speaks of our propensity to hide our weaknesses and struggles as Paul helps us to see that God's power is made perfect in weakness, that we should boast in our weaknesses rather than hide them. It speaks to the, the honor and privilege we've been given as ambassadors for Christ entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation that's found in him speaks to the beauty of radical generosity fueled by God's radical generosity to us in Christ Jesus. As has already been evidenced in the opening weeks of this series, at least I've seen it for myself, I trust that, that God will use this book to awaken our hearts to the beauty of the gospel that we might all the more see and savor this glorious Jesus. And so with that said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll be in verses five through 17 this morning when all's said and done. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, as I also say every week, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles, use it during our time together this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or have a difficult translation to track with that you brought with you, you can take that Bible as our gift to you. Let me go ahead and pray for us because we've got quite a bit of ground to cover this morning for sure. God, thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you for giving us this follow-up letter to the church in Corinth for all of the beautiful verses that we just looked at in quick, expedited speed. Thank you for all of the other verses that make up this book that might never make it onto a bumper sticker or a coffee mug. It is all a part of the canon of Scripture, and that means that it will not return void this morning nor when we sit with it on any other day. 
God-breathed, profitable to us. God, would you show us that even this morning in what's been one of the most challenging passages of Scripture that I've sat with in considering how it might be preached. Holy Spirit, we need you. Would you move? Would you help us to see, help us to hear, help us to receive that which you have for us through your word this morning? Spirit of God, enliven our minds, enliven our hearts for the glory of God and for our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So you just heard me pray it. Now I'm going to explicitly say it. This morning, uh, we're, we're gonna get into one of the many experiences of Paul's lack of logical sequence in this letter. As we move just in this morning's time together from a matter of church discipline in Corinth to Paul vocalizing a disappointment in showing up in a city and not seeing one of his friends and, and colleagues in the gospel there to his declaration that the church is a triumphal pr procession, the very fragrance of Jesus everywhere we go. For, for those of you like me who struggle when things seem to be kind of all over the place, I was reminded this week that this letter to the church in Corinth represents much of human experience, right? Our lives oftentimes, we're, we're like pinballs as we bounce from one wall to the other, on from one thing to the next. I was even thinking just a couple weeks ago to the day, I was in a hospital room in the ICU visiting uh, someone who's a part of our church and only an hour later, I'm teaching my kids how to ride a bike in our neighborhood. Like, where's the logical sequence in that? That doesn't look like the book of Romans, right? Where Paul's logically walking us through certain thinking and, and uh, certain things that he says are followed up by a therefore that helps to make sense of what came before it. No, this is very choppy. This is like a lot of our lives. And, and I was reminded even in our time together in the very room where we'll have that newcomer lunch uh, momentarily as we sat and prayed before this service that um, God is quite glorious and he doesn't need me to somehow um, weave and connect the dots in such a way that it makes him look logical, beautiful, and glorious. It's kind of like when we walk through the book of Ecclesiastes, if, uh, for those of you who are around for that, and I made the statement somewhere along the way that uh, God is not hindered by the pessimism of the author of Ecclesiastes. In fact, it gives him a great opportunity to flex in a very unique way. And so my hope this morning is that we see that all the more true in this morning's passage and as we walk through the book of 2 Corinthians in full, that as we see this kind of choppiness as Paul moves from one thing to the next in this letter, that we would be reminded that we worship a sovereign God who has ordered our steps, who is uh, over and enthroned with respect to the full story of redemption, that this is a God who nothing is, is haphazard or, or pinball-like for him but rather everything is a tapestry. He sees all of the beauty of it. He's sovereign over it. I hope we're encouraged as we walk through even a passage like this this morning. A couple of Sundays ago, um, I believe it was then that I made mention, and I made mention really just about every week of this series, um, that in terms of backstory, if you come in, you're like, okay, I have no idea of where we are. Can I get kind of a previously on, you know, sort of Netflix recap on what's going on here in terms of the Corinthian church? Roughly a, a year has gone by since Paul's put pen to paper to write 1 Corinthians. And it's been a year filled with all kinds of, of drama. Paul's received word through Timothy that the church was not in a good place, having been influenced by false teachers, 
which led the Apostle Paul to then pay an abrupt visit to Corinth in an attempt to seek to restore the church. It was not a good visit. It was a visit during which many openly rebelled against Paul, even calling his apostleship into question, so that Paul then left for Ephesus where he wrote a letter to Corinth calling those in danger uh, of rejecting him and his gospel to repent. A letter, as we saw last week, that's since been lost, a letter that Paul references here in 2 Corinthians. And the response to that letter was, was one of revival for the most part, as many did in fact repent, though there was a rebellious minority that remained. Here, as we pick up this morning's passage, Paul brings up a matter of church discipline involving one of those people who had openly rebelled against him, a man who had likely been cast out of the church on the basis of a previous example of church discipline that you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that example involving a man who was actively involved in a sexually promiscuous relationship with what many scholars believe to be his stepmother. Not good, right? A situation that was causing unbelievers to view the church with disdain, bringing disgrace to the name of Jesus and the church that Jesus bled and died for, so that Paul's response going back to 1 Corinthians 5, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. That according to the apostle Paul, according to scripture, the church is responsible for the publicly known unrepentant sin of its members called to enact church discipline at times. This is why we preach through books of the Bible, so that we don't get the luxury of bypassing passages like this, so that we have to wrestle with the whole counsel of God's word. We're gonna do that this morning. When you hear the language of church discipline, what comes to mind? My guess is that the answer to that question would be all over the spectrum, right? For many of us, uh, when we consider that question, the answer is not incredibly encouraging, be it the result of exposure to troublesome teaching maybe unhealthy practice, maybe both. And so uh, I wanna attempt to lay a little bit of groundwork this morning. I think this is critical because many of the Protestant reformers, men like Luther, Calvin, John Knox, they believed that a church is a church by definition if three distinguishing marks are present. And they didn't just come up with this off the top of their heads, they drew it from scripture. Those three marks being the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, baptism and communion, and then thirdly, Church discipline. And so if I could offer up a working definition of church discipline, and, and this is my attempt for the next two or three minutes to boil down the systematic theology chapter on this topic. If we could just kind of boil it all down and, and hone it in, so to speak, th these are the things that you would encounter if you sat with one of those thicker systematic theology books and read on this topic. Here you go, my working definition. Church discipline is the humble, courageous act of doing whatever it takes to restore an unrepentant, professing Christian and covenant member of the church to God and the church in love. Just a few things to draw out of that working definition. Church discipline is not a thought or a feeling, it's an act. It's not passive, it's not passive aggressive, it's a humble, courageous action. It's a whatever it takes kind of action. Even if whatever it takes is removing someone from the church or as was the case in 1 Corinthians 5, delivering someone to Satan. That's a whole nother sermon. You can go podcast that one if you wanna, wanna see what that's all about, going back to 1 Corinthians 5. 
Church discipline is not for non-Christians, but rather for those who refuse to walk in repentance while declaring, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and a member of the church. Church discipline is not about perfection, but rather repentance. Sanctification, many of us know it, myself included, can be a slow, brutal, grueling process so that the catalyst for church discipline is not imperfection, but rather unrepentance. Its ultimate purpose, church discipline, is to restore a person to God and the church. In addition, church discipline keeps sin from spreading throughout the local church. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven coming in. Um, And also, church discipline authenticates the corporate witness of the church. And lastly, as it pertains to that working definition, and this is as critical as any that we might talk about here in terms of talking points, It's an act of love. It's not a four-letter word. It's an instrument of God's grace. The the danger is that we would react to the unhealthy, maybe even unbiblical expressions of church discipline in such a way that we come to view church discipline as an enemy rather than a gracious friend. Some might ask, well, does unrepentant sin necessitate removal from the church in in each and every single case? And the answer is no. Surprisingly, if you look at the scriptures and you read various passages having to do with this issue, this topic of church discipline, you'll come to see a pattern that the sins for which church discipline is primarily exercised are those that are publicly committed in such a way that the corporate witness of the church is compromised and other believers in the church are are put in danger of being tempted to sin so that we're not talking about every sin imaginable. Again, Jesus is planting flags of dominion in each and every one of our lives. None of us have attained perfection. In fact, oftentimes, in God's grace, all it requires is a one-on-one conversation to lead to repentance and restoration. According to Scripture, Matthew 18, that's a really good starting point. As we encounter unrepentant sin in the church, a one-on-one conversation is always a good idea to begin with. And if that doesn't lead to the desired biblical outcome, we bring others along into that conversation, slowly building that conversation out to the point that as a last resort, resort, the church comes together to sort out what to do in light of that unrepentant sin. So that the idea, when you think of that phrase, church discipline, the idea is not that we run around with whistles in our our mouths calling fouls on one another constantly. That's not the image. That's not the picture. But in this situation, where we look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 this morning, similar to the situation in 1 Corinthians 5, things have escalated big time. So that the corporate witness of the church in Corinth is being compromised and other believers in the church are being put in danger of being tempted to sin. Picking up in verse five, Paul says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. In the situation, going back to 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the church in Corinth that they should mourn with respect to the man involved in the sexually promiscuous relationship. That word mourn carries with it this idea of confessing the sin as though it were your own. In our individualistic culture, that makes little to no sense, right? We're oftentimes more inclined to look at someone caught up in a a grievous sin and, and to make it an occasion for gossip at times or maybe to play the comparison game to make ourselves feel better about our own sin and unbelief. 
In Paul's estimation, when the church functions as God intended, she functions as a family. And when a family member gets caught up in something destructive, we mourn. If we love that family member, right, we mourn because we want more for them, and we mourn because those decisions that, that they've made damage the reputation of the family. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So that when a, a member of the church continues in visible, unrepentant sin, it has a way of grieving, of bringing pain to the entire body of Christ. If Paul's language here um, is foreign to your understanding, just as a side note of, of the experience of what it means to be the church, I would encourage you very much not just to go back and listen to that crazy episode in 1 Corinthians 5 with a man handed over to Satan, but go back and, and engage the entire series on 1 Corinthians because it's there that Paul lays some incredible groundwork on what it means to be an interconnected family, the doctrine of the body of Christ. He goes on to say in verses six through eight, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That church discipline is a, a means of God's grace by which God's people are brought to a place of godly sorrow and repentance, which apparently was the case for the man that Paul's talking about here. That in light of his godly sorrow and repentance, Paul encourages the church to forgive and comfort him, to reaffirm their love for him. We're talking about as public an act of restoration as was this man's removal from the church, that he might not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That word overwhelmed carries with it this idea of being swallowed up. You see it a lot in, in some of the poetic writings of the Old Testament, particularly the book of Psalms. I'll give you one example, Psalm 69, 15, where the psalmist says, let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Right, we're talking about a man who's seen his sin for what it is, and longs to be restored to the church. Very different picture than, than that that we oftentimes see of pushing rebuke aside and then just moving on to the next church, erasing one's history, never truly dealing with their sin. It's a, this is amazing. Like this man, desperate in the wake of his turning from sin for the forgiveness, comfort, and love of the church, and not just any church, the very church that had removed them from their fellowship. So that Paul expects the church to shift its thinking from removal to acceptance, from judgment to forgiveness in light of this man's expression of genuine repentance. Like how awful it would have been to have removed this man from the church for the sake of his faith, only to have then caused him to abandon his faith in the wake of the church's failure to reinstate him and to reaffirm their love for him. Paul goes on to say in the following verses, verse nine, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul says, verse nine, that comforting, forgiving, and reaffirming love for repentant sinners, it's not just a suggestion, but a matter of obedience. 
Obedience to God involves both the difficult task of, task of exercising church discipline when necessary on the one hand, and the difficult task of forgiving and restoring repentant sinners to the church on the other hand. That to do otherwise, Paul says, is to be, verse 11, outwitted by Satan himself. That Satan has his designs, his schemes, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. That just as we have a section of our uh, church's partnership booklet entitled Practice and Method, so Satan has a section of his playbook entitled Practice and Method. C.S. Lewis does a great job of exposing some of that in his famous screw tape letters. If you've never read that, you should give that one a run. How does Satan outwit God's people as it pertains to the kind of things that Paul's talking about in these verses? Well, when you read John 1, you see John telling us that Jesus came full of both grace and truth. And we see that over and over again throughout the gospel accounts. One of the most famous passages that, that gives us that both and, probably John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery where Jesus essentially runs off the scribes and Pharisees who are ready to stone this woman. And when they've all left and Jesus and the woman alone remain, he asks her, who's here to condemn you? And she says, they've all gone, essentially. And, and he says, well, neither do I. In other words, you're forgiven. You're a recipient of mercy and grace this very day, which he follows with the words, now go from this moment on and sin no more. You have this beautiful both end of grace and truth. The danger for the church is that we would image part of Jesus, and you might, you know, at first sounding of, of what I'm, I'm saying here, you might say, well, some of Jesus is better than none of Jesus, right? Um, but in this case, what Paul's saying is there's something destructive about sacrificing grace on the altar of truth or truth on the altar of grace, depending on your leanings, depending on your propensity. How does Satan outwit us as it pertains to what Paul's saying here? Well, on the one hand, he convinces us to not confront sin in the name of grace, on the other hand, he convinces us to withhold forgiveness from repentant sinners in the name of truth. The devil, on the one hand, loves unrepentant sin and will do everything he can in his power to keep Jesus' church from exercising church discipline. That's rampant in our culture. And the devil hates forgiveness and Christian love and will do everything in his power to keep Jesus' church from wrapping their arms around repentant sinners so that we've been outwitted by Satan if we choose to ignore unrepentant sin, thus compromising the corporate witness of the church and the integrity of the gospel. And we've been outwitted by Satan if we choose not to forgive, comfort, and love repentant sinners, thus sowing division and discord in the church. We're called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We'll get there soon enough, 2 Corinthians 5. And gospel reconciliation involves both. The truth necessary to confront unrepentant sin and the grace necessary to restore repentant sinners. Paul goes on to say, and here's what I mean by pinballing, like how do we get from what we just talked about to this, verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Like that's so far removed from church discipline, that must have been like a later journal entry on a different day, right? In the wake of his painful visit, 
during which many had openly rebelled against him and called his apostleship into question, Paul had written that letter back to the church in Corinth that's since been lost, which he sent by way of Titus, so that when Paul showed up in Troas, he showed up hoping to see Titus there, to hear how the church in Corinth had received his letter. Unfortunately, Titus wasn't there when Paul arrived, which created anxiety for the apostle Paul out of concern for the well-being of both Titus and the church in Corinth. Paul talks of that, that kind of anxiety for the churches in chapter 11, verse 28. We'll get there probably a couple months from now, where he says, and apart from other things, there's this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That Paul agonized over the well-being of the churches that he had planted, deeply desiring to see those churches flourish for God's glory and the joy of the people who made up those churches. So that one of the things in what seems like a passing statement for us to take away is, and this would be my prayer for us, may we love the church and long to see her flourish like the Apostle Paul. Both this expression of Jesus' bride and the many other expressions of the church faithfully committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As another side note, and this could be very dangerous to toss out there because there, there might be this running a little too far with what I'm about to say, but it doesn't make it any less true, and so I'll, I'll just put it out there. Notice that the Apostle Paul says that a door was opened for him in the Lord and that on the other side of that open door by God that his spirit was at a place of unrest based on the circumstances. So that it's not always true that when circumstances go poorly for us that that means that we have not been listening to God in terms of, of going in the direction that he's been calling us to go. That perhaps in the midst of the unrest, in the midst of the turmoil, turmoil, we may be right where God has us. He goes on to say, if we could keep on pinballing this passage this morning, verse 14, but thanks be to God. And let me just stop there. I love what Paul does here. He says, my spirit was at a place of unrest. My friend wasn't in the city that I expected to see him in. And, and look at how he leverages what, what, what seemingly not that big of a deal. Some of us would go, Paul, like you showing up to a city where you expected to see your friend Titus and him not being there, I have far bigger things going on in my life than that that bring me to a place of unrest. And yet Paul would leverage something seemingly so small to say something so glorious and great in these final verses of this morning's passage. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. That language, triumphal procession, it's a military language. It's a reference to the, the celebratory parades in Rome when they would secure victory in battle where prisoners of war were then marched through the streets as fragrant perfumes filled the air. At the end of those parades, oftentimes many prisoners were, were executed so that you also had the stench of death filling the air. There was this both and, both the fragrant perfumes and the stench of death declaring Rome to be the victor, to her be the glory. That's the kind of imagery, the kind of word picture that Paul uses to describe the spread of Christianity. So that God is the sovereign victor, 
Jesus is the general, and we are among the ranks of the redeemed. If you're a Christian, that's you. Rescued from the domain of darkness, as Paul says elsewhere. Brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Now marching to the cadence of the gospel. Lips declaring, lives displaying the beauty of Jesus Christ. The fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus everywhere, Paul says. The fragrance of a crucified and risen savior. The fragrance of grace and truth, going back to the earlier verses in this morning's passage. The fragrance of God's power made perfect in weakness. The fragrance of God's sufficient grace in suffering. A fragrance from death to death for some, as Paul says in Romans 1, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. A fragrance from life to life for others as the triumphal procession of God's people continues to expand by his grace. Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church and irrespective of the devil's schemes, the devil's intentions, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Some scholars go so far as to take that Roman parade imagery and in terms of attempting to interpret what the meaning of that is, would declare that God marches us as his conquered enemies toward our death As Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. That that kind of dying to self and being brought to life in him, that kind of language. And and if that's true, I don't know which interpretation is better, how far to go with some of that Roman parade imagery. But here's the amazing thing about Christianity. If that's true, that kind of interpretation, it still ends in glory for us. Because on the other side of every crucifixion is resurrection, which... Paul has already made crystal clear in this very letter, right? Going back to a couple weeks ago, the the God of all comfort in affliction. Afflictions bring us to the end of our rope and a death occurs, the death of self-reliance. And from that grave, the God of all comfort, to use the language of 2 Corinthians, raises us up, resurrecting us to a deeper reliance on him showing the world that you and I are not the main characters in this story of redemption, that God is, the God of all comfort, the God of resurrection power. He gets the glory when he delivers us from suffering and he gets the glory for the comfort and strength he gives in suffering. Everywhere Paul went, he boasted in his weaknesses. He proclaimed his sufferings and he also proclaimed a sufficient savior and king in the midst of those sufferings. And people were awakened by that fragrance, the fragrance of Jesus's supreme value his supreme worth, evidenced most surely in the furnace of affliction when we declare Jesus to be enough. So that I would say it this way, the fragrance of God's glory emanates from you when your happiness is in him, particularly in your suffering. So that, I said this a couple of weeks ago in this series, one of the greatest evangelistic opportunities that we have, it's declaring in the midst of our greatest sufferings that Jesus is enough. Those three words are so evangelistically powerful. Jesus is enough. It's letting people see us cling to him, the comfort of his presence in the midst of our moments of greatest pain and heartache. We don't have the power to make people alive in Christ. Our job is simply to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere we go. Our responsibility is to to proclaim the good news and to trust the melting of hearts to the God of salvation. If you you hear that and you find yourself thinking, who who am I? 
Who am I to play that kind of role in the kingdom of God? That language seems a little lofty, that I'm the fragrance of Christ to God, a part of this triumphal procession. If you think to yourself, who am I to play a part in that word picture? You're not alone. Look at what Paul says in closing out this morning's passage. The end of verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is no one. For we are not, verse 17, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul says, we don't live as peddlers of God's word, making the message of Christianity more palatable to others by watering it down so that they might drink it in more readily. He says the gospel is what it is, the hope of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. No need for lofty speech or wisdom. No need to hide my weaknesses. Jesus Christ and him crucified is sufficient. That we need only declare and display the beauty of the gospel. That we are not sufficient in and of ourselves. But the good news is Jesus is our sufficiency. And if you're not encouraged yet, let me heap encouragement on top of encouragement that yes, many will take in the aroma of Christ as a fragrance from life to life brought into our triumphal procession by God's grace, but regardless of how people respond to our declaration and display of the gospel, one thing is always and forever true. And hear this because our our propensity is to forget this and to forget it often. We, verse 15, who are in Christ are the aroma of Christ to God. Talk about this in the Ecclesiastes series. In Christ, you're not putrid smelling, nor are you fragrance free. You're scented. You're the aroma of Christ. Let that sit with you for a moment. You are exponentially precious to God. You're the aroma of God the Son in the breathing in of God the Father. If we could get our minds around that, our hearts wrapped around that just a little bit, my goodness, how it would radically reorient our thinking, our affection, our very lives. You're the aroma of God the Son in the breathing in of God the Father. And as God's precious ones, we've been given the honor and privilege of spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of this Jesus wherever we go so that God might get the glory and so that others might be brought into our triumphal procession, a procession of both, to come back to the beginning of this passage, grace and truth.